Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Chris Gaffney for Great Voices. It's just about four o'clock. Today, the state, the story of Haiti, what could have been with Nicole Phillips, who's a US support lawyer. The 22nd of November rally, information with Debbie Brennan. The why behind December the 13th in Paris. I'll be speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. But first, let's hear what Mr Kevin Healy has to say for his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when we'll move on to satire. But first, satire is clearly inappropriate for the big news of the week, which we can't just ignore by cracking a few unrelated bad jokes. There's no humour in innocence being slaughtered in the name of some maniac's god. God wants all but the relatively few adherents to the maniac's heresies dead. God made these people to be slaughtered. Only a couple of times, Tiananmen Square was one I can recall, have we deviated from our usual style. Paris, we we can't miss it, hour after hour, page after page after page. Much less coverage to the same fanatic, same slaughter in Beirut and other cities and countries not white Western capitalist. The terror, death and homelessness inflicted on innocent Brazilians by BHP and what coverage there has been is centred on the economic damage to shareholders. The terrorism, war crimes of deliberately bombing a Médecins Sans Frontières hospital, the continuing horrors, terror in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, the legacy of our white Christian crusades, invasions, slaughters, the coalition of the killing Bush, Blair, Howard and their successor war criminals, the fanatical Islamic maniacs terrorising the world a result of those war crimes. War crimes beget war crimes beget war crimes. War begets war begets war. The fanatics describe the Paris innocents as crusaders. One religion advanced into about the 15th century, the other into about the 11th. From Richard the Lionheart and Sullivan to George Bush, Barack Obama, Tony Blair, our own warmongers and the terrorist fanatics. IS, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, all slaughtering in the name of the same God. Analyses of Paris, page after page after page, have concentrated on how to prevent these fanatics becoming fanatical brainwashed by evil or how surveillance can prevent their brainwashed terror. No analysis of the role Western Christian civilization has played in treating their countries and religion as Western corporate property or culturally inferior. Indeed, creating their very boundaries under colonial division, slicing the Middle East cake, displacing Palestinians altogether to make way for a pro-Western terrorist ally, the very base of much of the problem, and condoning the continued oppression of the Palestinian people. The Western Christian invaders act like innocents. Headline in this morning's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Reality is harsh when only one side puts value on life. Wonder what the Palestinians, the Iraqis, the Afghans, the Syrians, the wedding parties and hospital patients being bombed would think of that. 
the Paris murderers are butchers, maniacs, but they won't be stopped by more of the same. Invade, create terrorist fanatics, and then invade again because they are terrorist fanatics who see our bombs and train killers as the real terrorists. A side that puts value on life has a strange way of showing it. To state the obvious, there's no simple or quick solution now, but there will be no solution while white Christian civilization continues its modern version of the Crusades, burying its head in the oil-washed Middle East sands. Assay, maintaining the Paris link. The week that was, the Lord Rupert usual suspect Lackey Hack Cullen's latest expose of other threats to decent society, and he includes new big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull among the threats. Activism is a four-letter word. Now, I could have sworn activism is an eight-letter word, but then again, idiot is a five-letter word. He also tells us the majority of true blue Aussies don't believe in climate change, reject the warmest arguments, and we can remember when the Socialist Party was accused of putting a ballot box at every cemetery. Oh, and he also tells us those Pacific Islands watching rising seas steal their land and food are hallucinating, apparently, because our brilliant columnist tells us they're not only not sinking, they're rising out of the sea. I think he's gone mad. Well, madder than normal, if you know what I mean by normal. Friday, the Minister for Burying His Head in the Sand, Josh Fry de Planetberg, announced that call for volunteers to host a nuclear waste dump, which at the time we said would generate a stampede of volunteers who just can't wait to have a nuclear waste dump in their backyard, had attracted all of 28 offers must say 28 more than I expected, now reduced, he said, to a short list of six sites. Surely an obvious spoonerism. Think he must have meant a sick list of short site Edness. If we had any doubts about just how evil the evil unions are, the very same Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, which told us activism is a four-letter word and no one believes in climate change other than a few brainwashed, warmest fossils opposed to fossils, published not one but two deep philosophical analyses by two independent minds. Former economic guru under the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the last even darker ages, Peter Cost the Workers' L.O. Bosses, and former state-caring business class party big supremo, creator of mass depression, Jeff Footedmouth. Truly balanced journalism, objectivity at its best. And they pulled no punches telling us just how evil unions are. The evil, of course, is in those union officials who do give them ammunition. Unlike great responsible true blue Aussie corporations like BHP, which we've always thought stood for bloody huge profits, but now realise stands for bloody huge polluter. Not that the pollution has anything to do with it other than it owns the mine where the devastation has occurred and for goodness sake it said it's sorry and I'll bet it is. In one 18-par report on the disaster in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, paragraph 12 referred to the dead and the personal impact, and the other 17 analysed the economic impact on shareholders, much more important, of course, than a few dead, injured and now homeless, poverty-stricken Brazilians. 
and how cruel. Talk about kicking poor old bloody huge polluter when it's down. For the Environment Minister over there to dredge up a report going back seven years which suggested the tailing dams might just pose a safety threat, claiming bloody huge polluter and its partner, Vile, knew but did nothing about it, as if they'd put their bottom line interests ahead of the local people they've come to help. It looked like a scene from hell, this P1 True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline yesterday. Paris, I assumed, but no. A survivor's account of the bloody huge polluter terrorism. Well, they said they're sorry and assure us all the sulfurous smelling sludge is perfectly safe. Nothing dangerous in it. Well, well apart from the deaths and destruction and displacement, but they're sorry. Getting back to those evil warmest BHP deplores that left-wing threat to the world economy and the Lord Rupert usual suspect, Lackey would, would we can be sure agree with this, left-wing threat, the World Bank, put out a report claiming climate change could push more than 100 million people into extreme poverty by 2030, disrupting agriculture and spreading disease. The impact of global warming is born unevenly with the world's poor woefully unprepared to deal with climate shocks such as rising seas or severe droughts. This new bolshy agit prop addition to warmest anthropogenic nonsense reported. The world's non-poor breathed a sigh of relief. Phew! They rub their hands greedily, so sorry, compassionately. In other words, it's business as usual. Yet that related commie threat to common sense, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo, barack for change, 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 barack for change, banned a Canadian US of tar sands pipeline, which the usual warmest fear-mongering suspects suggested might create a few environmental problems, but only at both ends and right along. OK, so most of the reasons were based on US of economic interests, but there are two points of view there. Thankfully, the sensible Republicans who know there is no such thing as climate change have promised to review the decision if they win next year. But one great US of good corporate citizen could probably explain how this happened. What colour is the big supremo at pull the other one look knowingly? And to think we were considering paying at least some tax to this black thief. Because Apple, the other one, knows that if you're black, you're obviously a thief. Well, finally, back here, the technology giant so dedicated to helping society, it feels that help is sufficient and it's unreasonable to expect it to pay tax on top of that, denied kicking half a dozen or so kids out of a store, telling them they were unwelcome and posed a security threat only there to steal. Well, app pull the other one would be stunned to think that anyone would steal from anyone, particularly the public purse, denied kicking them out because they were black. Top marks to the secondary school principal for going back to the store with them and demanding an apology, and that they took it up with the principal shows how hurt, insulted, demeaned they felt. We believe in equality for everyone. Apple, the other one, refused to be interviewed, but put out a statement, a brilliant rejoinder. Uh, so why were they thrown out? There's everyone and everyone, and these were the wrong-coloured everyone. 
So this is one case where a black ban seems very appropriate and not racist. Good afternoon. And many, many thanks to Mr Kevin Healy. Hear more from Kevin, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits. The crisis in Haiti over recent times has been described as the heartbreaking plight of Haitian refugees caught between a country that doesn't want them and one that can't support them, with up to half a million legally stateless people facing deportation from the Dominican Republic to Haiti. Nicole Phillips has lived and worked in Haiti as recently as a couple of months ago. Nicole is an attorney with the US-based Institute for Democracy and Justice in Haiti, and we begin the interview with my description of Haiti, a nation where people have been struggling for centuries against repression and injustice. Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty accurate statement. You know, Haiti was first discovered by Christopher Columbus, sailed from Spain to discover America, where he landed was actually Haiti. After his discovery, then the slave trade started, right, in, in, in the 15 and 16 and 1700s. So Haiti was a country that was colonized by the French, and they brought the slave trade to the rest of the Americas. And so Haitians, of course, were the victims of barbaric treatment, being overworked, the, the local indigenous population on that island, the Tahinos, they were wiped out in a number of decades, that, which tells you by illness, but also by bad treatment, which tells you how terrible um, the treatment was at that time. Because of this terrible treatment of, of what you know, of course, of the slave trade in Haiti, then with the French Revolution that happened in 1789, the Haitians leaders within the slave community got this idea of wanting to revolt against the French and claim their independence as the French were claiming their independence from the aristocracy in France. And so there was a long battle of over 10 years for their independence, and they won in 1803. They defeated Napoleon's army, one of, of course, the largest armies in the world, and became the first country in the world, the first independent colony in the world of slaves, which they very proudly took in 1804. This, as you can imagine, to the rest of the world, to the United States, to France, where slavery was still legal, um, this was extremely threatening to them. Slavery did not become illegal in the United States until 60 years later, until the 1860s. So over that time, these colonial countries really discriminated against Haiti and isolated them and refused to trade with them. Haiti had been one of the wealthiest, the second wealthiest colony in the world, just under the United States. They had many crash crops that were quite valuable, including tobacco and coffee and sugar and indigo. They depended, of course, on that as their revenue for their country. About 20 or 25 years or so after the revolution, France came back, parked their battleships off of the coast of Haiti and said, we will recapture your country unless you pay us a debt. And the debt was ostensibly for their last property due to this revolution. But the property, in part, was slaves, human beings that they were claiming property from. So they made Haiti pay back to them 150 million francs for this lost property. This debt was so onerous on the country, the debt, but it included the interest payments, right, that were required by the French government, 
that it took a, a large portion of Haiti's revenues and immediately put the country into great debt. That debt was then sold from the French government. It went to a French bank, and eventually it was sold to a U.S. bank and was paid off in the 1940s to what's now Citibank, which shows you the length of this, but that's also the devastation of the Haitian economy for that entire time, well over 125 years. So as a result, Haiti, through modern history, has not been able to have the public infrastructure, schools, the government structure, the, the court system, because they've never been able to afford to spend money on that. They've always, it's always gone out the door into this sort of debt. Sort of fast forward, Haiti was, was then also dominated by, by two dictators, François Duvolier, known as Papa Doc, and Baby Doc, his son, Jean-Claude Duvolier, and they reigned from the 1960s through 1986. Jean-Claude Duvolier was, was named president um, of the country when he was 19 years old by his father um, in 1971, when his father then passed away and Jean-Claude took over. So we had that brutal dictatorship, some of the, the torture and treatment of prisoners, of political prisoners in that country, has been heralded as some of the worst and most barbaric torture in, in Latin America in that time period. And of course, as we know of the Pinochets and, and the others, we know that that's pretty impressive, unfortunately. And then more modern history, then leading up into the 19, with um, the, the fall of Jean-Claude Duvalier, brought about elections, Haiti's first democratic elections in 1990. President Jean-Bertrand Aristide won those elections in 1990 and took office in 1991. And about seven months later, there was a coup de d'etat against him. And so the country's really been struggling since then for fair elections and democracy when often there are coups, there's been another coup d'etat against President Aristide again in 2004. And both of these coup d'etats have been supported for sure and, and likely funded by the United States government as well as, as President Aristide was in their mind socialist left leaning. What's been the relation with the peoples in the Dominican Republic, which is the other half of the island of Hispaniola? Yeah, it's interesting how similar and yet different that history has been. While Haiti was a French colony, the Dominican Republic was a Spanish colony, so that this was sort of a, a proxy war between France and Spain at that time. Consequently, Haitian speak French, their food is sort of more French-oriented in some parts of their culture. And in the Dominican Republic, they speak Spanish, and, and their culture more reflects Spanish culture. So in some of those respects, although they both were countries with slaves, Haiti revolted, Dominican Republic never did. And in fact, they do celebrate their Independence Day, but it is not from Spain. Their Independence Day is from Haiti. And there was a brief period about 20 or so years, when Haiti occupied the Dominican Republic, and it was soon after their independence. They were trying to liberate them from the colonists, right, from the Spaniards. And they fought back and got Haiti out of their country. And there has been great tension ever since then, since the 1800s. In the 1930s, the Dominican Republic had a president named Trujillo who waged a massacre, a genocide. He was very racist, perhaps as a result of the longer stay of 
the Spanish in Dominican Republic as opposed to in Haiti. The general color of skin of Dominicans is often lighter than Haitians. And Trujillo was, was considered to be very, very racist against dark-colored skin, although he had it himself, and waged a massacre that killing upwards of anywhere between 10 and, and 25,000 Haitians, which for the 1930s was an extraordinary amount of people. So there has certainly been tension up until that point and including since that point. So fast forward to 2015, what we have now is a government that for at least 15 years, but really stemming back for decades, has fairly consistently tried to figure out ways legally and socially to use the labor and the skills of Haitians, but not have them become Dominican, not allow them to make their home on Dominican soil, to be free enough to be able to deport them when they're no longer of use to them economically. So throughout the 80s and 90s, there's when the fluctuations of sugar prices come up and down and, and the, you know, they need more sugar plantation workers and they bring the workers in. As soon as the crops are over, they send them out in a very tumultuous time for Haitians because when they're kicking them out, they can be violent illegally, violent, not giving them warning of their deportation, not giving them due process. And children are often born on Dominican soil under their constitution. They're entitled to citizenship. It's born on Dominican soil. They don't allow them to have that citizenship. So that's been something that's been percolating for the last few decades. That's how this continued discrimination manifests. In 2015, they announced that they were going to deport en masse Haitian migrants that were there and that hadn't registered and weren't entitled, had legal entitlement to stay, as well as those who had been born in the Dominican Republic but hadn't found the paperwork to be able to prove that they had been born there and hadn't registered with their system. So this was a huge, huge fear for many of us, certainly people of Haitian descent living in the country. Fortunately, they didn't do the en masse deportations, like they said. I mean, this is potentially affecting hundreds of thousands of people. However, we have seen since that time, since about June of this year, we've seen upwards of forty to 50,000 Haitians and Dominicans of Haitian descent who have voluntarily left the country for fear of violence, threats of violence, discrimination, racial profiling, children not being allowed to go into schools, there also have been a few thousand people that, that have been forcibly deported as well. So it's really creating a huge crisis between the two countries. Sort of a trade war has started over this. It's created that sort of political, economic crisis. It's really created a humanitarian crisis in Haiti because Haiti is not prepared to deal with the tens of thousands of people that are coming into the country. It's lacks development, as I mentioned in the first place, but also there still are internal displacement camps from the earthquake in January 2010. In Port-au-Prince, we still have over 50,000 people living without homes. So to get another 50,000 people or so in search of services is certainly a huge burden on our economy. Most Haitians that I've heard of go to the Dominican Republic is for financial reasons. There often are family ties as well, but primarily the migration is 
due to economic factors. It's, it's an interesting question about the earthquake, whether and what impact the earthquake has had on migration flows, and it's a little unclear. Certainly after the earthquake, there were a lot of people that were leaving Haiti for the Dominican Republic, but it does appear that many of them have come back. So I don't know that there has really been any evidence of a huge uptick in migration to the DR since the earthquake or as a result of the earthquake, although there has been some. What happens to the people when they go back to Haiti? What awaits them? Well, it depends on how strong their family ties are and how prosperous their financially their family is. It seems like most have gone back to some sort of family situation or have had enough money to be able to, to figure out a place to live, although it's unclear because nobody's really following them. The Organization of International Migration has done interviews of about 35,000 or so migrants. We've got some great statistics about their status coming across the border. We haven't been able to track them, right, so we don't know where they end up. We know that there's about 3,000 or so people living at one border town in a a displacement camp that has nowhere to go. That's very concerning. The conditions in the camp are are really subhuman, very dangerous for medical conditions as well as safety, lack of food, lack of water, etc., in late June of this year, we observed truckloads of people coming across the border um, with destinations all over the country. They seem to be bringing little possessions with them and having little money in their pockets, but going somewhere where there was friends or family, etc. Most of them had some family still in Dominican Republic, sometimes very close family, like spouses or children, that they needed to reestablish their lives back in Haiti due to the, the, the climate in the DR. Um, one thing to keep in mind, of course, is that unemployment is, is so high in Haiti that most people are folded into the informal sector, selling things on the street, fixing things, not necessarily with a formal employer. So finding that kind of work when you've been out of the country and your networks are a little bit weaker can be tricky, but it's generally the way most patients get by to feed themselves. The devastating earthquake was a number of years ago now, but the after effects are still there, aren't they? Yes, very much. Most of the rubble by now has been cleared. A lot of the homes and businesses that fell, a lot of them have been rebuilt. You still see homes, particularly wealthier homes that are bigger, perhaps too expensive for families to fix. You still see those homes collapse. People still dwelling in encampments, sort of squatters in those areas. You can see that in some of the wealthier neighborhoods. There's been some construction, but not nearly enough. You know, over 200,000 people died, but also close to 200,000 homes collapsed. The last estimates I saw were that around 15 to 20,000 new homes had been built. So when you add the math, if there's a deficit of about, I think it was about 190 or so thousand homes were devastated and only about 15,000 homes have been rebuilt. There is a lack of homes. Estimates of tens of thousands of homes have been repaired, but again, there still is this big deficit of homes. So I think housing crises is still the number one crisis. Most patients who have repaired their homes, despite the $10 billion of aid pledged from the international community, 
most patients have rebuilt their homes themselves, scraping by in their own way that, they, that they've always been able to survive. I think the international community can claim some successes, some, some great successes, but in general, most of the assistance, earthquake assistance that sort of really impacted patients have, have been themselves. This is Tuesday Home Time, and I'm speaking with Nicole Phillips, who's a lawyer from the United States, and here she talks about the organization she works for. I work on the staff attorney at the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. The organization is based in Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States. The executive director is Brian Concanon, who had lived in Haiti, first came to Haiti on a United Nations mission to observe elections. 1995 or 1994, um, and stayed and helped found an organization in Haiti, which is IJDH, uh, Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti's sister organization, which is called Bureau des Avocats Internationaux, the International Lawyers Office in French. And so he helped establish the BAI in Haiti, and they continue to do incredible human rights accountability work, trying to hold government officials accountable for human rights abuses. Um, whether it's extrajudicial killings or other types of torture and abuse, as well as a lot of criminal defense work. What we have in the United States, a public defender's office. There is an entitlement to a, a defense attorney when you're arrested, theoretically, but in practice, there is no association to be able to provide those lawyers to you. So you're on your own. Um, so if you can't afford a lawyer, there are huge problems. Um, and, in fact, there is a pretrial detention rate of about 80%. That about 80% of the, of the prison population has never been convicted of their crime, and many people are still in jail longer than if they had even been convicted of the crime for which they're, they've been put in prison. So this is something that, that we were helping. Um, in 2004, which is about nine years after the, the start of BAI, there was a coup d'etat that was largely funded by was helped carry out by the United States government. And a lot of the work imprisoning and trying to hold accountable Haitian uh, leaders from prior coup d'etat government, paramilitary that had led the, the government between 1991 and um, 1994, those prosecutions were sort of overturned by the incoming government. So what Brian and, and many of them learned at that point was you can do all this great legal work in Haiti you can bring justice to Haiti through their own court system, with their own lawyers, with their own judges. The will is there. The ability is there. But the problem is when the U.S. government can undermine democracy and undermine the justice system through just waving their magic wand, that's where we need to focus our attention. So he opened up um, the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti in 2004, the same year as the coup, um, and our mission here in the United States is to try and inform policymakers, whether it's the U.S. Congress, try and inform media of what really is happening, get Haitian voices as much to Washington, D.C., as much to the U.N. in New York or Geneva, etc., try and prevent another catastrophe like the 2004 coup from happening again. I'd imagine that looking at the work that you're doing, that you wouldn't be too welcome there by the powers that be. Yes and no. I mean, you're right. It's a great question. I think one of the ways, and I, I sort of take lead from, from Brian, follow his lead on this, is all of our work is very well grounded in facts and legal arguments. 
so that the majority of our work, regardless of what side of the political aisle you sit on, it's hard to refute. And so we're quite conservative in the allegations that we make, the reports that we make. They're very well-cited, with endless footnotes, more than you'd ever want, etc. I, I think we have been able to establish credibility through media within Congress. Of course, you know, generally in some meetings in D.C., they will give us the polite nod and, and agree with us and, and shake their heads, and then secretly you know they're just sort of squirming and not going to follow any of our recommendations that we make at all. And so in which case we sort of have a carrot and a stick approach. We try and have dialogue, open discussions as much as we can, and then if we're not seeing any change in policy, then we, we hit them, quote-unquote, with, with an op-ed in a big publication, and we shame them. And that, I think, has been quite effective. And the biggest uh, example right now is, is through elections. Haiti right now is, is undergoing elections. The second round of, ele- of legislative elections and the first round of presidential elections was on October 25th. The first round was August 9th. We had a lot of, of advocacy, a lot of meetings, a lot of uh, interview with media to try and get out there that the first round of elections on August 9th were terrible. I mean, there was widespread violence. There was destroying of polling booths. Haitian civil society election monitors found that in over 50% of the voting booths, there were serious irregularities and calls for new elections entirely, that you cannot build a second round of elections based on the winners of these fraudulent and and illegitimate elections. Unfortunately, we, we, we lost that that battle. They went ahead, the United States, the Organization of American States, the European Union, all said they acknowledged that there were some problems, but said that they were good enough for Haiti. Apparently, their standard for democratic elections differs in Haiti as it would in Canada or Australia or the United States, which I don't think is fair, and I don't see that in international treaties at all. So there's a double standard, but that they were good enough for Haiti and a step forward for democracy in Haiti, um, which is just rubbish. We did everything we could after those elections through congressional meetings, et cetera, and more press work to try and put pressure for this round of elections to to have them be better, to to have monitors acknowledge the problems that are in the elections and see if we can't have better elections. The elections on October 25th, there was less violence. There was less intimidation. We didn't have the the, the um, destroying of polling booths, etc. But in some ways, it, it was even worse because the fraud just became more of underground. There were all these systems with election observers that were hired by political parties who were voting multiple times that we think potentially skewed the outcome of these elections. And it's so hidden and underground that it, it, it's going to be difficult for us to prove that. But that's sort of the battle. You've gone right to the top. You've taken on the UN over the cholera epidemic after the earthquake. Yes. Another thing that's sort of hard for us to conceptualize for those of us who live in Australia or in the United States, etc., is that one of the enemies, um, unfortunately, of, of Haitians after the earthquake has been the United Nations itself, which, of course, is a shock. To all of us who really look to the United Nations as a beacon of, of democracy and human rights accountability and development, etc. And what happened was that in October, 
2010, which was about nine months or so after the earthquake, a, a UN battalion from Nepal, where cholera is endemic, brought cholera to Haiti. A few of its soldiers were infected with cholera. It's unclear whether they knew that they were infected because of the poor sewage and sanitation facilities of the UN peacekeeping base. The sewage overspilled and or potentially there's evidence that it might have been dumped from the septic system into a river that connects with the largest river in Haiti, the Archibonite, which is, as people have said, the breadbasket of the country. That is where the, the largest agricultural sector is of the country. And people, tens of thousands of people use that water to bathe in, to drink from, to wash. So within a matter of days, over a thousand people had cholera. Fast forward five years, we've just, had a, we've just commemorated the five-year anniversary of, of the bringing of cholera to Haiti. About 900,000 people, about 9% of the population, has been infected by cholera. About 8,500 or so, almost 9,000 people. So the, the 900,000 people that have been affected has had financial hardship on families. So, so both the deaths and, and the, infect, the infection rates have been really devastating for the country. In response, the United Nations first just denied any accountability at all. They didn't even really do any sort of an investigation. It became quite clear through breaking of stories from Al Jazeera and the Associated Press that the, the source of the, the infection was likely this municipal base based on complaints of fecal matter, um, odors, thicknesses in the past in this area. But then Harvard epidemiologists and other scientists from around the world also concluded that this base was the source of this rare cholera strand that comes directly from Nepal. And unfortunately, five years later, the United Nations continues to deny any liability at all. They won't even allow Haitians to bring a complaint to discuss their liability. This is the only entity in the world that is above the law and with whom you cannot file any sort of a legal claim. So we've been trying as lawyers, we've tendered claims, we've filed claims with the UN directly through a special claim procedure. They never responded to that. So we then filed a lawsuit in New York District Court, in the federal court, on behalf of victims. It's a class action lawsuit on behalf of everyone affected. And that case, we, we unfortunately lost in the district court level. Uh, it's now on appeal with the Second Circuit. The United Nations has not even appeared in this action. Um, the United States government is actually defending the UN um, and saying that um, the UN does not need to appear because a U.S. court does not have jurisdiction over this claim. And the reason is based on a convention called the Convention of Privileges and Immunities that the U.S. government signed that gives immunity to the United Nations for all claims. But what the U.S. government does not mention is that this same convention also puts on an obligation for the United Nations to provide some kind of a mechanism for the settlement of any kind of private claims recognizing that you have to have some form of a procedure, of a mechanism to be able to file a complaint, um, even if it's an administrative complaint procedure. 
but the UN has never established that before. And so that's what this lawsuit is about, is trying to get some kind of grievance mechanism for Haitians to be able to claim compensation. Really what Haitians want is to get clean water in Haiti, infrastructure and sanitation infrastructure in Haiti so that people stop dying. Um, the, the epidemic continues. People are still dying every, every few days of cholera. And so this needs, this needs to stop. We've focused on the things that are wrong, Nicole. What about the things that are right? Well, I'm glad you've asked that because there are a lot, of, a lot of really positive initiatives and a lot of reason for hope. One of the things we talked about is sort of the justice system. There are a lot of women's grassroots organizations that are working hard against gender-based violence to try and change the culture of violence, fights that, that I think we can recognize that we've been working on here in the United States and I'm sure is being worked on in Australia. Because of these efforts over the last several years, there now is new legislation pending before Parliament that would be a gender-based violence. Uh, Violence Against Women's Act. Our organization is prosecuting gender-based violence claims. We're able to use the justice system to bring accountability for victims. I think that is a huge, huge victory. I I also see that there is, I think with social media, the fact that we had so many election monitors out. We've never had that, as far as I know, in the history of elections in Haiti. We haven't had thousands of civil society participants out monitoring elections, providing results. We were tweeting them on the day of. I mean, the information from what was happening in small rural towns in Haiti, getting out into the big, you know, into Twitter, into the blogosphere, witnessing what was happening, I think is the number one step that we need to take in order to bring accountability, in order to stabilize democracy in Haiti. And so social media has been helping that tremendously. I meet every, I'm also a law professor um, at, a, at a law school in Haiti, and so every day I meet students that, that want to change the system, want to use creative ways like social media to do it, believe in um, the possibility of a less corrupt, more accountable Haiti. And so I, I think there's a lot of hope. <clears throat> the way that we get there is by having less intervention by the international community, like the United States, like the United Nations, the Organization of American States. I think that Haitians are ready to do this work themselves, and they're able to do this work themselves. And so that's what I'm sort of hoping, is that through our pressure, there'll be less intervention from the international community, and that Haitians will be allowed to rebuild their country, strengthen their country themselves in a much more sustainable way. Over the years, has there been cooperation between Haiti and the Cuban people? Haitians in general love Cubans. <laughs> um, and I think one of the reasons is because of the medical services that they've been able to provide in a couple of, of different ways. You know, one of the first responders to the cholera epidemic or one of the first responders after the earthquake were Cuban doctors, many of whom were already on the scene. She was sent hundreds of doctors to the country every year in remote parts of the area where there otherwise is no access to medical service. So this has been a huge, a huge factor for Haitians. But, you know, they've been meeting um, cholera treatment plants, et cetera. They also take a number of students per year, of law students, of med- 
medical students, I'm sure others, to be educated and to live in Cuba and to get their education in Cuba. I worked with a lawyer who had spent his whole law school career in Cuba. The education is free, and then they send you with the condition that you go back to Haiti and that you practice law or practice medicine in that country. And so those are just very exciting infrastructure building projects that seem to be sustainable um, and have produced a lot of benefits in in the country in a a sustainable way. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay, bye-bye. And that was Nicole Phillips, who's a hard-working lawyer based in the U.S., but spends a lot of time in Haiti, and she works for the U.S.-based Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. As world leaders meet in Paris for the United Nations Climate Summit, we, the people, will gather across Australia and march alongside people in hundreds of major cities around the world to create the largest climate rallies in history. On the evening of Friday the 27th of November, the Australian Conservation Foundation urges you to join us at the State Library of Victoria at 5.30pm. From here on in, we're all in. Australian Conservation Foundation is a 3CR supporter. down to the Lerman Hotel in Brunswick East on Saturday the 28th of November at 9pm for the Joe Hill Centenary Tribute Concert. Old Time Union Band, Bob Mancor, local Melbourne musicians plus special surprise guests will perform songs of workers' struggle and pay tribute to a man who inspired Woody Guthrie, Paul Robeson, Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, Bruce Springsteen and countless others. For more information visit www.3cr.org.au. In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed. On the 22nd of November, Melbournians will again rally to prevent the anti-Muslim Reclaim Australia from growing into a far-right movement. RI has changed its location from Parliament House to Melbourne's outer northwest suburb of Melton. And the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism believes that this is because the numbers preparing to counter-rally at Parliament have far exceeded RAs. Yesterday I spoke with Debbie Brennan from CAF and began by asking her to talk about the solidarity offered to 3CR after members of the United Patriot Front gained access to 3CR. As soon as Campaign Against Racism and Fascism heard about the... United Patriots Front barging into this 3CR station. We were very concerned. We weren't terribly surprised, but we were outraged, and we sent a message of solidarity to all the presenters and volunteers and staff at 3CR. And what we let 3CR know is that we are completely with them because we're listeners ourselves, we're presenters and subscribers of 3CR, and we've benefited a lot from 3CR in many ways. We said to 3CR that we believe that the UPF targeted them because the station is the voice of those in the fascist sites. So they're the voice of 
women, First Nations people, refugees, immigrants, social justice warriors, LGBTIQ people, unionist people with disability, and so on. And that 3CR has consistently supported CARF's mobilizing against the UPF and Reclaim Australia. And we also said in the message of solidarity that the UPF, their aim was to intimidate 3CR and to silence these voices, as well as scare off the community and warn off the anti-fascist organizers. But we said that these fascist thugs did not know who they were reckoning with because instead of being silenced and intimidated, 3CR responded with complete defiance as they would. And we also told 3CR that we are really keen in continuing to building an anti-fascist, anti-racist turnout on November 22nd and to make it bigger than ever before. We pointed out that this is terribly important that 3CR and CARF together do this because of the climate that we're facing right now, that not only is November 22nd the fourth attempt by Reclaim Australia and the UPF to set a foothold here in their attempt to build a, uh, a movement, but they have been actively, especially UPF has been actively building up their activity in Bendigo. Given all of this, and given that just days before the UPF visited 3CR, they had also attacked a Muslim woman in Melbourne and also an anti-fascist activist. So it was that solidarity that we wanted to convey to 3CR to let 3CR staff and volunteers know that they're not alone, but that we also very much value the importance of 3CR in fighting the fascists in the far right, especially in these times. What is the occasion of the 22nd of November? On the 22nd of November, Reclaim Australia is holding rallies across the countries or in various cities across the country. On November 22nd, Reclaim Australia is planning rallies in cities across the country. And the point of this is to continue what they tried before, which is to spread the, the anti-Muslim hatred across the country. So that's, that's the meaning of November 22nd. I think it's also significant, though, that this is coming shortly after the Australian Liberty Alliance launched itself in Perth. That was the end of October. And the Australian Liberty Alliance is an openly anti-Muslim alliance, and it intends to be running in the elections, the federal elections next year. So we really see all of this as just a continuing build-up of anti-Muslim fear-mongering to use as that wedge to divide the working-class community. This rally, now we have Melton. Why Melton? 
Well, Reclaim Australia originally planned their rally for um, the Parliament steps in Melbourne. So they actually intended to have their Melbourne rally in central Melbourne. But last week they announced that they are moving to Melton. And we see this partly because they saw us mobilizing. They could see the, the strong building happening. Uh, they knew that they would be vastly outnumbered in Melbourne. So they decided to go to the outskirts of Melbourne, which is in Melton. Now, they're using the excuse for going out there of the apparent plans to build an Islamic school. And so they also know that Melton is a working class suburb in Melbourne. They're using Melton and the excuse of the uh, building of an Islamic school to use that as a rallying point for the community there. So they're hoping to get a foothold. Whereabouts in Melton? It's it's not that close to Melbourne, is it, for people who are not sure where Melton is? Okay, Melton is in the northwest outskirts of Melbourne. It's actually not terribly far from the centre of Melbourne. And it's the, the rally that they're holding is going to be in a park opposite the Melton City Council. And in fact, the address there is 232 High Street in Melton. And just as with all of the counter-mobilizations against Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front, what we're strongly advising people is to not go on their own, but to go in groups because safety and security is going to be just as important on November 22nd as any other time that we face these people because they are violent. And, of course, the police from Melbourne will be there as a force, but that's no protection either, is it? Absolutely. Um, that we, we know from the past experiences throughout this year that the police are there to protect the far right and the fascist groups against us. We can certainly expect the police to be there in force, as they have been every time. And you're quite right that when we do go, we also have to secure ourselves, our safety, against police violence as much as the violence of the far right and the fascists. Is there any possibility that they could change this venue at the last moment to stymie your rally? Yeah, you know, anything's possible because um, this does really often end up as a cat-and-mouse game. And they do know that, just going from past record in Melbourne, the community of Melbourne is taking this very seriously. In fact, we're getting galvanised more and more they do know that our numbers are going to be out there. It would not be surprising if at the last minute they change something. So this is why uh, listeners should stay in touch with CARF, either via our Facebook page, so that's the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism Facebook page, or they could 
text the word subscribe to the following number, which is 0422-726-843. Okay, and another worrying date is the 12th of December, where the, the far right is planning to celebrate the dreadful Cronulla riot in Sydney. That's absolutely right. And and this is another part of that national build-up that's happening as far as the far right and um, the fascists are concerned. So as you said, on December 12th, that is the 10th anniversary of that horrific, what's called Cronulla riot, that's when fascists 10 years ago had incited that riot against uh, their targets at that time were the Middle Eastern community in Sydney. And so they are, in their word, celebrating 10 years ago on that date at Cronulla again. So that's going to be another very, very important uh, counter-mobilization being organized up in Sydney. There are people going from Melbourne to Sydney as well because this is another important flashpoint. We can't finish, Debbie, without talking about what happened last Friday in Paris. That's right. In Paris, of course, there was a terrible atrocity that killed about 130 people and um, injured many, many more. And I would say that among those killed and injured, of course, are Muslims. What the far right and the fascists are doing, again, predictably, about that terrible news from Paris, is to whip up even more Islamophobic fear here. So they are trying to use this to gain even more numbers on November 22nd. What's equally chilling is that our government, just as governments across Europe, are using this atrocity to justify a further crackdown on our civil liberties. Apparently, George Brandis, for example, the attorney general here, is using Paris as a justification to rush through legislation on the metadata retention and giving ASIO even more powers. And we can rest assured that they're going to be using this to be uh, clamping down even more on immigration into Australia and, and clamping down our borders more than they already are. That atrocity in Paris is being used to the hilt, not only by the far right and the fascists, but also by our own governments. So this is even more of a reason for us to be out there on November 22nd in our, in our thousands. You can imagine the sophisticated surveillance that the French state must have on all technologies, yet they didn't detect anything. Yes, I did read something that the intelligence, in fact, knew that something was going to happen. It it would be very hard to believe this came 
as a total surprise. And the other thing that has been mentioned a lot on social media, pointed out um, quite rightly, is that all of our attention is going to Paris, where Beirut, which experienced a terrible atrocity the day before, is not getting the attention in the news that Paris is. And that's certainly speaking volumes to us about whose lives are more important than other lives. And the thing that is very worrying as well is that just before the Paris attacks and immediately after the Paris attacks, the far-right and fascist groups in Paris and outside Paris were attacking the refugee camp in Calais and attacking immigrants who first come into France via Calais. And so in France, Muslims and the immigrant communities are copying it immediately. And this is something that we really have to be preparing to stop here because the climate is for this to happen here as well. But rather than seeing this with a lot of alarm and fear, we should be preparing to stop it before it stops. And that, again, is what November 22nd has to be about. Okay, if you could give that address again. It's at the park just outside Melton City Council at 232 High Street in Melton. The rally is going to be from 11 in the morning on the 22nd of November. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you, Jan. And that was Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. And that rally, as she said, is on the 22nd of November in Melton at 11 o'clock. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. You're all invited to the Sampari Art Exhibition and Sale, organised by the Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office at the ACU Gallery on Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. The Sampari Exhibition will also include a host of exciting events, including poetry, literature, the environment and film between December 4th and 13th. For more information, go to dfat.federalrepublicofwestpapua.org or call Bronwyn on 0413-988-280. The Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office is a Tricia supporter. Finally, on Tuesday Home Time, researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. I think the horrific events in Paris in recent days and the, the massacre of non combatants, of people 
going about their lives last Friday has really shocked lots of people. But it's also shocking the much of the media commentary that's accompanied the events in Paris because they lose so much of the history that might help us understand, not justify, but understand what's happened. A lot of the commentary is that these were random attacks in places, that these came out of nowhere, that the sources of this were hidden, the debate whether it's come from inside or outside, as if the two were unconnected. There's a, a reluctance, given the horror of what happened and the deaths of 130-odd people, to talk about the sources of the fact that many French citizens are willing to use terror as a tactic and are willing to attack people going about their business. The fact that people talk of de-radicalisation and wanting to stop this, not only in France but in Australia, if we ignore the history of France's relations to its own citizens and to people from Africa and the Middle East, then it's very hard to understand what's going on. The other element, and it's been mentioned in passing but is really significant, is that the attacks in Paris are part of a broader complex. We've seen in recent weeks attacks against a Russian airliner, a Kurdish left rally in Ankara, parts of Beirut. Once again, these are presented as these random terrorist attacks, often attributed to Daesh, Islamic State, but not really drawing the connection explicitly that forces that are engaged in military operations within Syria and Iraq are now being assaulted outside Syria and Iraq. Um, the Russians, as we know, have been intervening through air power in support of the Assad regime in Syria. The forces on the ground that have been fighting against Islamic State troops are from the Kurdish Peshmerga and the military forces aligned to the PKK, the Turkish um, Kurdish party, and Hezbollah, the Lebanese militia, has sent brigades of troops into Syria to fight alongside the Assad regime. So it's not surprising that the bombings in Beirut are in areas where Hezbollah has its stronghold. It's not surprising that bombing in Turkey is directed, some say by IS, some say by the Turkish state or deep elements of the Turkish military-backed state, against the HDP and the Kurdish nationalist movement, which has had a, a major upsurge, uh, winning representation in Turkey's parliament for the first time in a long time. To divorce what's happening in Paris from this broader context is really uh, leads us down false paths um, and the obvious point is that the declaration of war, um, so-called by François Hollande, the French president, against Islamic State, in some ways recognises Islamic State as a state. Um, you go to war with other nation-states. You know, in a paradoxic way, the response that we've seen is part of that, that framing. And the positioning of the attacks in Paris? In the immediate aftermath of the attacks, people sort of forget the history of Paris, the invention of Paris as a city. There's a wonderful book by the French writer Eric Hazan that talks about the invention of Paris and its long heritage of uh, rebellion and revolution. The first attacks against the Stade de France, the, the French national stadium, were quite significant. Uh, as the ultimate symbol, France was playing Germany in the national stadium. Obviously, it's a so-called soft target where there's large crowds of people, and if you want to cause the maximum amount of terror, what better place to do it? But the fact that they were there. And the French football team, the national team, is famously multiracial. Um, Zinedine Zidane, the great uh, Algerian-born soccer player, uh, led the, the team to World Cup fame. Players of African, of Maghreb, Mashrek heritage, 
uh, in the French national team. So as a symbol of France, the fact that the attacks were there is not insignificant. Similarly, the initial shootings um, of restaurants, the Petit Cambodge, the Cambodian restaurant, and the bars at Carillon and other places, were near the Place de la République, the Republican Square, a central a symbolic place of French Republican values, so named. The attacks that were sometimes presented in the media as random, I think, were not so random. I mean, they were deliberately targeted not only at easily accessible civilian targets, adding to the horror of the terror, but also to Republican symbols. And I think that's a really central part of this discussion and why there's a level of alienation from the French Republic amongst many people of Algerian, of Arab, of African heritage. And we've talked about this on the program many times before, that French notions of citizenship and French notions of Republican values mask a history of colonial relations between France and people in Africa, in the Middle East, in uh, the Pacific and elsewhere. France's constitution in 1958, brought in by General de Gaulle in his so-called coup at the time, bringing in the current French Republic, Article 1 of the constitution says that there should be no discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion and so on. So unlike uh, British colonialism, which had a history of subaltern populations, you know, we're the British and everyone else is second-class citizens, France doesn't have that. If you're French, you're French. Anyone living in the French overseas territories has the full rights of French citizenship. So if you're a Kanak in New Caledonia or a Tahitian in, in uh, French Polynesia, you can vote for the European Parliament because you're French. It goes to the extent where it's illegal under French law for data collection, for example, to distinguish people's ethnicity. You can't, in New Caledonia, for example, uh, do a lot of statistics that would distinguish do the Kanak people have different housing rights or needs to people of European heritage. French law and computer data collection and so on, under Republican values, says you can't distinguish. Now, ideal, that seems ideally you know, suited that you treat people equally, but it, it masks the fact that there are second-class citizens in France, often living in poorer working-class areas, in the housing estates to the northeast of, of Paris, where it's alleged that some of the people involved in this attack have come from. The film uh, La Haine uh, by Mathieu Kasovitz, wonderful film, Hate it's called, and it shows three young guys from those, uh, the banlieue, as they're called, the housing estates, these tower blocks set out in the middle of nowhere, a young Jew, a young Arab and a young African uh, steal a policeman's gun during a riot on the estates and then they get on the metro and go to the centre of Paris to the western part, which is the rich bourgeois suburbs, and go on a rampage. And it's a tragic story about lost hope. And you've seen that lost hope in inner-city areas right through Europe, indeed parts of Australia, one might argue, in Sydney, where there's a, a layer of people who've migrated or whose parents more often have migrated to France but who have very poor employment prospects, very poor housing, very poor opportunities, and often based on racist discrimination. There's been a whole series of attempts to, you know, people sending in job applications with John Smith versus Mohammed al-Barasi, and John Smith will get the job even though they have the same qualifications, and all those sorts of things are played out. But the French secularism, which is a very deep Republican value, which has seen the separation of church and state entrenched in laws going back to 1905, has meant that that's played out in many ways. French public schools, for example, 
um, under the Sarkozy presidency uh, a few years ago, there were bans on people wearing religious symbols to school. And one of the most obvious religious symbols is young girls wearing the hijab. If you go to a French public school, French high school, you can't wear hijabs today. Other religious symbols, Christian, Jewish, were also banned. But really, this was an anti-Islamic initiative. And for obvious reasons, people whose religious faith uh, involves the display of religious symbolism were distressed that those secular values clashed with their religious faith. And I think that tensions that's played out in French society are masked by this notion that we're all French, we're all Republicans, we're all, you know, and the Republican values are the highest values. I'm not a religious person, but I'm not sure that you can ban people's faith and attempts to do so will cause a backlash. That's been a very bitter dispute in France, and you see it played out with the rise of the French National Front under Marine Le Pen, the daughter of the founder, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who's a neo-Nazi fascist who you know, denies the Holocaust and was involved allegedly in torture in uh, Algeria when he was a paratrooper in Algeria. Um, the French National Front is a rising force and in the current context will do incredibly well in regional elections to be held in December and then uh, in the looming French presidential elections, which will be held in 2017. Are there still unresolved issues from that Algerian war because it's in living memory of the people living in France now? Absolutely. I was struck by one comment in the the paper yesterday that said uh, the declaration of a state of emergency and a curfew in Paris on the night of the the attacks was unprecedented. It hadn't happened uh, since the Second World War. Well, that's just wrong. I mean, there have been many curfews in Paris, some of the most notorious, some of the most famous tragic periods were during the Algerian War between 1954 and 1962. France was at war in Algeria, which was then a department, part of France, uh, but the the FLN, the Front de Libération Nationale, the National Liberation Front in Algeria, launched military actions in Algeria, but um, facing military defeat, took the war to France. And there was a series of bombings by the FLN throughout France, particularly against military targets, soldiers uh, against French infrastructure, blowing up petrol tanks and so on, but eventually also against civilian targets. And you see the sort of same terror that was used uh, this week uh, back in the 1960s. There were curfews then. Uh, There was harassment of Arabs, Algerians, who'd come to France right from the end of the 19th century, uh, living in Paris... Famously, the FLN called a rally in 1961 to oppose the curfew um, in the Arab quarters of Paris. And in terrible night, um, the rally was attacked by French CRS police, hundreds of people beaten, dozens killed, estimates 60, some estimate many more were killed, bodies thrown in the Seine, people taken to the French police headquarters under Maurice Papon, uh, the police prefect who was a notorious fascist collaborator during the Second World War, Terrible, terrible scenes in in Paris in 1961. And as you say, that's within living memory. The parents and grandparents of the people, Algerians living in the squatter settlements and the housing estates today around Paris, remember clearly that heritage, even if many other people have forgotten. And many of the Algerians who worked with the French effort against the FLN, many of the soldiers who joined the French army to fight against the FLN with the defeat of France with the peace agreement in 1962, 
migrated to France, um, the so-called Harki, those who'd collaborated with the French state, those who'd fought in the French army against the National Liberation Front, fled, and tens of thousands of people migrated to France uh, in the early 1960s. And so it's the sons and daughters, sometimes the grandkids, of those Harki, of those migrants from Algeria particularly, who are living in the housing estates in the northeast of Paris, who have faced significant discrimination. Even though they're French-born, they are not seen as French by many of the Conservative National Front voters. A real concern from that French-born generation of migrant children who've often come because their parents allied themselves with the French state but ended up living in very poor conditions, working in factories or unemployed in the outer suburbs of the greatest city in France. And as I say, the fact that the newspapers can say, oh, they haven't had a curfew in Paris since 1945 is just stupid journalism and misses that whole heritage of conflict. You know, famously, um, the famous film Battle of Algiers by Gilles Pontecorvo documents, indeed using some of the people who were involved, the war in the Kasbah where... Algiers was quarantined. The Arab quarters of the Kasbah and uh, other Arab quarters were blocked off from the European parts of Algiers and people smuggled bombs out of the Kasbah in baskets, many women carrying them, and they attacked civilian targets in the same way that we've seen in the last week in Algiers. The capture of one of the FLN leaders is paraded before a press conference and one of the journalists says, why do you use these basket bombs? And I'm paraphrasing, but he says, well, we don't have planes We'd be happy to swap our baskets for your planes. This is, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, and that heritage is being played out again today where you have Russian, American, French and indeed Australian planes attacking the IS targets in a military operation. Basket bombs that we've seen, the equivalent, the modern equivalent of those are being played out once again. So I'm not trying to justify the horror of what's happened, but you have to try and talk about why. You have to understand the history of this to think about what your response is. And part of it has been the crushing of progressive forces in the Middle East, in much of Africa, since the 1960s, since that time. And what role has France played in that? Well, France has backed pretty much every military dictator in Africa in its former colonies. France, like the United States and others, has at times chosen to back one or other of the Gulf regimes. Certainly uh, Saddam Hussein's regime in the early days was armed with French missiles, French technology, and uh, governments of all persuasions have uh, backed one or other of the Gulf monarchies or the Arab dictatorships particular times. So there's a long history of both France and Russia backing the Assad regime, particularly through arms sales. We've seen the historic defeat of the left communist parties, Fedayeen and ultra-leftist groups in, in the Middle East. There are some areas where, um, for example, in Iran, sections of the left through the trade union movement and so on have maintained a presence. The Kurdish areas, you see left-wing as well as uh, conservative Kurdish forces. But by and large, the defeat of the left in uh, most Middle Eastern countries, in Iraq, Egypt and so on, has left Islamist forces as amongst the main opposition to the status quo. You see it with the Palestinian movement in the 1960s. The terrorist forces famously was the PFLP and the uh, Democratic Popular Front uh, for the Liberation of Palestine. Both organisations whittled away 
compared. And today Hamas in Gaza is uh, the strongest force in opposition to Fatah within the Palestinian movement. That defeat of the left has enormous implications for the sort of tactics that we're seeing today from oppositional forces. And the very fact that countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and indeed Turkey have given objective or financial support to Islamic State is part of that picture. Turkey that's allowed so many foreign fighters to pass through the border where a tighter border clamp could have limited the flow of both supplies of petrol flowing one way and arms flowing the other way, overseas fighters getting through to northern Syria and Iraq. So you've got this bizarre situation where the forces that are most actively fighting on the ground against the IS includes the Peshmerga from Kurdistan, includes the PKK-aligned forces, includes the Hezbollah, uh, the Shiite forces from uh, southern Lebanon and Beirut. All of these groups deemed as terrorists, like the PKK, by the Australian government. And when you're looking at history, you can't ignore the deal that was done during World War I regarding the Middle East. Next year, um, 2016, is the centenary of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, a famous agreement between uh, the British and French foreign secretaries at the time to draw lines on the map and reconfigure the Middle East in line with the defeat of, proposed of the Ottoman Empire, period of Lawrence of Arabia and uh, uh, support for the rise of uh, King Faisal, ultimately creating Saudi Arabia, um, the division of uh, Iraq and Kuwait, creation of Syria and Lebanon as independent nation-states, Jordan as a Hashemite monarchy, the British and French Empire collaborated to discuss the carve-up of the Ottoman areas that had been under Turkish control and with the defeat of the empire leading to historic genocide such as the attacks on the Armenians, displacement of Kurdish populations in the interests of this uh, nation-state creation has left a legacy of colonial boundaries that are under stress today. Obviously, Daesh, IS forces have famously dissolved the boundaries between Syria and Iraq and those northern areas. The Kurdish forces are seeking to carve out a nation-state comprising parts of Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, uh, certainly along that border, although they say they don't want independence. I think that uh, hope still beats in the heart of many Kurds who are today fighting against uh, the Islamist forces in uh, Iraq and Syria. And since the end of the Cold War, those colonial boundaries have been under stress. 1991, lest we forget, the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam was justified by the argument that this was just a creation of British colonialism, that this was historically Iraqi territory, the Kuwaiti monarchy had no legitimacy and so on, so that um, Saddam's attempt to incorporate Kuwait and its oil resources in 1991 was smashed by a a massive American-led intervention. And so right through the Cold War we've seen the testing of the boundaries of that. Strange realignments, the historic uh, enmity between uh, Iran and the Wahhabi regime in Saudi Arabia now being played out. We have Iran backing militias against IS and Saudi Arabia, from all uh, significant reports, providing financial, political and other secret support for IS. So you have Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia backing Islamist movements, Um, and as we know, the attacks in 9-11 has caused enormous debate within the American state about whether Saudi Arabia is the right horse to back uh, in the Middle East. And the recent uh, negotiation of the nuclear deal with Iran 
shows that some elements of the American state realise that getting into bed with the Saudis creates more problems than solutions in dealing with these sort of situations. And with the crushing of upsurge of popular revolt in 2011, uh, the return of the Egyptian military to power, um, the crushing of revolt in Bahrain, the Saudi involvement in a war against uh, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, the alignments in the Middle East are quite fluid at the moment where the Americans have really decided that Iran as a, a major power, despite the 1979 Iranian revolution, is a force that has to be reckoned with and is a force that has to be dealt with. And that's causing a lot of debates within the US. Um, you listen to some of the Republicans about they'd be happy to back the Saudis against Iran, but large elements of the American state realise that Iran's a, a major force in holding back IS. And these sorts of attacks in Paris are uh, really part of that picture. Is there any significance in the fact that the one country that hasn't been attacked in the Middle East is Israel? Well, the attacks have been domestic in that sense, but it's that classic situation since the building of the the apartheid wall, as it's called, the the wall dividing West Bank from many parts of uh, Israel proper. There's been a series of incidents, most recently an upsurge of violence, but literally with people stabbing, Palestinians stabbing Israelis and, and so on. It's the inequality of the forces in this situation is, is striking. Israel, once again, faces a complex situation. Israel is quite happy to see chaos in Syria and Iraq, uh, which were two of the so-called steadfast Arab forces uh, going back uh, a couple of decades in terms of their support for the Palestinian movement. The Israelis have uh, worked hard to rebuild relations with Turkey in spite of the incident where the Turkish ship carrying uh, peace protesters for Gaza was attacked. The Israelis have seen Turkey as a very strategic ally in their relations with the Arab and Muslim world. And so there's a whole series of difficult situations. But more and more you see the isolation of Israel more and more you see the Netanyahu government losing the plot in terms of analysing the sources. Uh, his recent comments, for example, that the Mufti, the Grand Mufti uh, of, of Palestine, uh, was a greater th- cause of the Holocaust than Hitler. I'm paraphrasing, but the, the, the sort of statements that have been made from um, the Israeli Prime Minister are just bizarre in terms of an understanding of the greatest threat that's been brought to Jews with the fascist regime and, uh, in Europe uh, in uh, the 1940s. To conclude with France, what will this lead to? This is going to lead to more tragedy. I think the tension between recognising the rights of French citizens of Arab and African heritage, making them own, contribute, value the society, is a tension that is getting worse rather than better by the anti-terrorist steps, the counter-terrorist steps that are being taken to crack down on a, on a minority. Framing of the conflict between the West and Islam means that there's 1.6 billion people of Islamic faith out there. There's an awful lot of people to take on. If it's framed as a political question with the reactionary values of the Islamist movement, the Salafist movement, then it's a more realistic question about how people, regardless of race regardless of ethnicity, can deal with those political questions as there. If it's a war, then you choose sides in a war, (laughs) and people will choose sides. And many people in France won't choose the side of the French Republic um, because of that colonial history. And to ignore that colonial history leads us into serious, serious problems that are coming. 
On a smaller scale, we have the same thing. Channel 9 puts Pauline Hanson on the telly on Sunday night saying that moderate Muslims, so-called, should speak out or they should leave their religion. You know, here we've got that sort of racial profiling in Australia and on a micro scale with the shooting in Parramatta, with uh, people in Australia who've been tempted to go off and fight in Syria, we have on a microcosm what's happening across Europe with this fundamental debate. I think there's a, a real political challenge for the left in terms of critiquing the Islamist movement, the reactionary nature of much of their solution to the crisis, but to isolate the terror as a bestial thing, as many headlines have done, just ignores the politics and the complexity of all these elements. Once again, ironically, Paris is hosting the climate conference in a few weeks, and yet no one's talking in the media commentary I've seen in the last week about the role of climate change in driving conflict in Syria. There's a number of very good studies out now showing how the north of Syria has been in such severe drought that it's driven people off the land and has been one of the drivers of the conflict, which is not purely military in Syria, going back you know, to the 2011 uprising. And that concatenation of the post-2008 economic crisis and how that's hit hardest in working-class areas and the housing estates of France, the driver of climate change is a driver of conflict in the Middle East. All these concatenations of effects is part of the picture, but people don't want to talk about that because that then places responsibilities on us as well as on them. You know, the calls of the poor enhancers of the world that moderate Muslims must act means that there's no need for us, white fellas, to act. And I think that's deliberate, that sort of framing but I think it's really important and if you talk about these things you get slapped down as if it's inhumane as if it's disrespecting the dead and there's no intention to do that the horror of what happened should not in any way be mitigated but if we're talking about what responses we want simply to going to war is not going to work and I think you see that from the Barack Obama administration from Malcolm Turnbull and others they recognize that going deeper and deeper into war in Syria is not going to solve what are political solutions. And indeed, he's, you, our Prime Minister has used that term, political solution. But if you want to have a political solution, you've got to talk politics. And once you start talking politics, it's very difficult for the G20, <laughs> for Putin and for Obama and for Turnbull and for François Hollande, because it involves a discussion about what should happen in the Middle East and what drives conflict in the Middle East and what drives people to use such horrific terror tactics. Thanks to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Just about the end of the program, just a message about the rally and then it'll be end of me for the day.